0: Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. Is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Hope everyone is safe and sane and wearing a gosh darn mask. Don't be one of those horrible people who decline to wear a mask and claim your freedom is being impinged upon. It's not, no more than the demands that you drive on one side of the road or drive sober. The opposite of freedom is not anarchy. Uh, anyway, that public service announcement out of the way. Crazy times continue. We're tracking this a few hours after the Washington, D.C. event. The City Open announced that it was taking the year off. It couldn't surmount the various challenges, most of them related to uh, travel. The U.S. Open still on the calendar. My intel is it's about 50-50 or 60-40, but um, we will continue to monitor. World Team Tennis continues afoot in West Virginia. No positive tests, but Daniel Collins was, uh, expelled for leaving campus. Kim Kleisters is the league's preemptive and presumptive MVP. Strange times. Um, again, let's leave the uncertain present and future and talk about the past. Specifically, Pete Sampras. Our guest this week is Steve Flink. Steve is a tennis journalist for almost 50 years, a real historian, a member of the Hall of Fame, all-around good guy, Westchester resident. Uh, Steve has a new book out. It's titled Pete Sampras' Greatness Revisited, and, uh, in keeping with the title, Steve revisits Pete Sampras, sizes him up uh, now with about 20 years of detachment since Pete won the uh, his 14th and later 15th major, obviously setting a standard that uh, was quickly eclipsed by three different players. So this is a, a great conversation with uh, Steve Flink. We talk about Pete Sampras, what he achieved, and how we should be taking the measure of Pete Sampras now that he is fourth on the all-time majors list for men, something no one saw Twenty years ago, when he was number one. All right, here he is, Hall of Famer Steve Flink. Congrats, first of all.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Um, I, the biggest cliche question with with authors is why did you uh, why did you want to write this book? But I feel like it often it often yields some of the best responses. So uh, why why Sampras? Why now?
1: Well, I thought the timing was good, especially in light, John, of the of what that iconic trio has been doing. Almost since Sampras left the game, Federer taking over, and and then Rafa and Novak, and and suddenly they they were they were the three greatest players in history in in the minds of many. And I thought Pete was so too easily forgotten. And uh, I, I I always had a great appreciation for what he brought to the arena. I, I, in the back of my mind, I always wanted to do a book like this, and then the timing seemed ideal. Given the the dominance of, of those players and and the fact that he seemed to be unfairly fading into history,
0: you you say unfairly. What's that?
1: Well, because I think you know when somebody is number one in the world for six years in a row and they win fourteen majors and they're dominant in what I think was a more difficult era. Stylistically, the types of players he had to confront—the likes of Ivanisevic and Krajicek and Becker and Edberg—I mean, if you look at the scope of his career, I think there was more diversity in the game back then. So I think it took a lot to for a player to be to stamp his authority on on an era as as thoroughly as Pete did. So that's why I just mean I, I think it's the nature of things. It, I mean, obviously during the Sampras, or maybe some fans were too quick to forget about Rod Labor. I think it's the nature of, of sports. But I, I think in his case, it was particularly true because he never tried to call attention to himself.
0: What was his level of involvement in this project?
1: Well, we did many hours of interviews. You know, I mean, I guess I started out at the, in the fall of 18 and, we, and, and, and wrapped up the project, you know, recently. And, but I, I, I would come back to him you know, we I, I can't say how many hours it was, but it was a lot. And then I would also interview other players, John. I'd go to a Rafter or an Ivanicevic or an Edberg or a Veland or a Curry or Chang, all these players, even Novak Djokovic, get their impressions and go back to Sampras with the, some of their thoughts to get his response to what they were saying.
0: So I, I was thinking it was 20 summers ago that he wins that, that Wimbledon and Twilight and, and beats Rafter and – Breaks the uh, you know he wins his fourteenth major and this this great holy grail is uh, achieved. If you had told him in two decades from now you'll be number four on the list, what do you, what do you suspect his response would
1: be? Well, I think his response would have been somewhat like yours and mine. You must be out of your mind. I mean, when Federer started am- amassing those majors so quickly, starting in two thousand three, I-, I think Sampras himself realized by 2007 it was it was going to be likely that uh, Feder would break his record but then to have two more guys come along and have Rafa and Novak as well uh, none of us could it was inconceivable I think to all of us but I asked him what he have played on I mean if he could have known that that his records were going to be jeopardized but I, I I think he knew he couldn't really have done it he'd given it everything he had and I don't think that he uh, I think he, he stopped when uh, precisely when he should have
0: Right. No, I mean, I I think uh, we 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 talk about this a lot about how difficult this decision is for athletes, and you you talk about this this cliche of going out on top. Um, nobody did it quite like Pete Sampras did. Um, but but what? Go go back to that question. I mean, is his is he amused? Is is he sort of shaking his head? Is he upset? I mean, it, it must be very strange to devote your career to this record that you think is unbreakable, impregnable, and then watch. Three different guys sort of uh, leapfrog over you? I mean, is, is he shaking his head? Is, what's, what's his emotion?
1: Well, I think he's amazed, but also deeply impressed with all three. What I liked the most was I did a chapter near the end, by the way, about imagining Sampras against Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal. You know, an interview and used a lot of quotes from Ivan Isovic and Djokovic and others. How would, how would that have played out? And actually, he did very favorably amongst most of them against that trio. But I think that uh, he, he's very generous the way he looks at these guys and in, impressed with all three in very different ways and yet believes that he could have held his own. Uh, it, it, it's an in, interesting outlook that he's got. But no, I, I didn't sense any kind of resentment whatsoever toward toward the three of them. Right.
0: You... um. You strike me as someone who, you, you're, you're all about the tennis. That's something I've always really respected about. You, you've never had, since as long as I've, you've never had interest in who's, who's dating who and who's changing their outfits and who's got <laughs> what Twitter feed. It, it's all between the, you know, what happens between the lines with you, um, which, which I think is extra sort of, has extra heft when you talk about Sampras because this is a player who, as a tennis player, has always really appealed to you. Um if it's not about his social media feed and it's not about h- his attire and his affability in the interview room what what is it that has moved you so much all these years
1: well i think you you uh, i I think you sum me up well that's the way I would like to be looked at as a writer it, it is about the tennis i guess i I was just always uh I always admired the craftsmanship and the professionalism i mean you looked at agassiz and he wandered in and out of his professional professionalism, I think, through the years. There was a sort of an instability. And Courier was un- unfortunate in that his body broke down and maybe he trained too hard. But if you look at the other greats, I just thought Pete had his priorities right. And I just love the dignity that he brought to the arena and this the way he his reverence for the game, his reverence for the past greats of the game and the Australians and and how he wanted to be perceived out there. So that, that that's really what 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 drove me to to do this i guess i i mean I think that he 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 stood out to i guess in in the forty five forty six years I've been reporting i he was the most admirable champion that that i covered
0: what did you learn about him additionally writing this book
1: Well, i learned that i i he certainly uh, he loves his family which we knew but I think he has great regard for his kids and he's and 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 Lo- and has really enjoyed the time he's had with his family, that I've learned that he doesn't he has some of these things he had much of there were there were parts of his career that he hadn't that he didn't remember with that much clarity necessarily. Certain matches that I thought he might remember that he didn't because I think he's not one that just constantly dwelling on the past. And but I, I it wasn't any that was anything that surprising because I'd done so many interviews with him before he retired. And even since he retired I I had done a lot of – and probably once, twice a year I would call and do do a story on him and just catch up on how he was doing in the senior tour or what was going on in his life. So I feel like I know him pretty well, so there were no shocks. But I thought it was very thoughtful and and uh, reflective about what he'd done.
0: I'm always interested in players' recall, that uh, there always seems to me this, this real continuum. And, you know, R- Roger Federer is a guy who you say, well, what happened in that – Seventh game against Dominic rabati at the you know, Basel Indoor in 2002, and he'll remember the point. and And other players have no recollections of matches. Where Where does Pete sort of reside on that uh, on that spectrum?
1: Yeah, I'd say he's midway on the spectrum, John. I mean, I, I I thought Agassi had an incredible memory for his wins. He tended to sort of uh block out losses. I think they were too painful, so he didn't have the point by point recall. But on his major wins, he could go point by point. Martina Navratilova was very good at that, too. I'd say Pete is in the middle of the spectrum. There are certain matches he has a, a, that he recalls with a lot of clarity, others not so much, but he, he, he remembers the overall feel of it and the, the crucial turning points and what, what was going through his mind. But the, the details, I'd put him in, in the middle.
0: What would you say would big biggest triumph, biggest regret?
1: You know, I tried to get, I got at the regret. I tried to get at the regrets, and I don't really think, I mean, yes, I would think deep down it would be that if only he could have cashed in once on the French. I mean, I thought, for instance, in 94, when he was, was having one of his most dominant seasons and uh, leading up through Wimbledon before he got hurt after Wimbledon, that was a great opportunity he lost to Curry in the quarters. Maybe if he'd really honed in on it that year, or 96 for sure, when he got to his only semi and lost to Kofelnikov, and Kofelnikov only beat him twice that time and a few weeks earlier also on clay. And if he had beaten Kafelnikov, he would have played Michael Steak in the finals, and I think that would have been a good clay court matchup for him. So, but he doesn't I, – I, I just don't think he, he does regret much, other than that he internalized a lot. Maybe there were times he, he kept too much inside, and, of course, that led to some, to an ulcer, and, it, and you know, he, he, he really – there was a lot more going on inside him than most fans realized.
0: What do you think his relationship is with the, the fame part of the job? And, uh, you know, the, the great knock on Pete Sampras was he was boring. There's a guy from Las Vegas with jean shorts and a ponytail and bandanas and celebrity romances who's taking up all the oxygen. When he looks back, what do you think his perception is of, of the way he handled the non-tennis parts of the job?
1: Well, I think he felt he felt like he he, he did his best to, to – to do what he could. I, I, I think you're right in the way you describe it. I, I think that's the part that he really didn't like necessarily. He wanted to go out and play and it was all about winning and preparing and collecting major titles. And the rest of it, I think, you know, he felt that, you know, he, he uh, there were obligations and responsibilities that I think he feels he, he lived up to. But it's not, like you mentioned social media. He's not doing any social media now, interestingly enough. He did say that if he would have been around today, maybe he would have had to do some of that, or maybe he would have even been okay with it, but that's sort of being true to his values. I mean, you look at all the other ex players and they're tweeting all the time, and that he doesn't have any interest in that what do you, what do you make of that? I, I, res- I like it. I like the fact that you know and he, and he said to me several times, you know I'm a private person. I like the fact that you know he's doing it his way and doesn't feel a need to be out there and, and again, calling attention to himself. I think if there was something, maybe if the commentary had been more appealing to him, he could have done that very easily. And I think he would have been quite good at it, but he just, uh, that's just not him. I think, you know, he, he, he understood that he was a celebrity and, and a sports icon, but now that he's had a chance to be, to just live his life in, in California, I think he's been very happy with that.
0: T- tell us more about that. Um you know, I, I think a number of us saw him maybe, maybe a year ago, Um, and we, he was in Australia several years ago as well, but I mean, what, what's his life like? I mean, this is, you're right, this is not someone where you could go to a social media feed and see every Instagram photo of uh the every sunset he's witnessed. What's, what's Pete Sampras's life like in 2020?
1: Well, I think, you know, it, 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 very close to the, to his wife and his two kids and Likes to play, I mean, obviously the pandemic, I mean, it's changed everything for all of us, but I, he loved, loves playing a lot of golf and going to the gym and staying fit and and then, you know, he's taken on certain business projects periodically and obviously, as you know, he played the senior tour for, there's that period from like two seven, 2007 to 11 where he played a lot of the Jim Courier senior events and then as he got older, obviously he had to stop playing those, but it's a pretty it's a quiet life, but again, I don't think he's felt the need to take on a high profile business opportunity just to have his name out there in the spotlight again
0: you suspect he's happy
1: i he's, he I certainly had that impression in in the many hours over a period of many months that we spoke yes i think he's and i think he's he said that several times he is he is very content and you know he lives by his own code, and some people you know, everybody has to do it their way, and he certainly has has lived up to his standards.
0: What do you think the relationship is in tennis between a player's history, legacy—to to use an overused word—and the way they go about their business post-playing? I mean, Pete, like you know, not unlike we, not unlike Steffi, not coaching, not commentating, not macron—you know, not not McEnroe-ing. Um... What impact does that have, this, this fairly low public profile? What impact do you think that has on the way history is recalling him?
1: Well, that gets back to the premise for the book again. I guess it made him, it, 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 it possibly kept him away from the public imagination even more because he wasn't inserting himself into the conversation. and he, you know, he hasn't constantly been out there doing interviews on television or doing anything in public where people would see him again and remember him more vividly. So... But I think that that he's been more than willing to to accept that. But I I I I felt like maybe the book would be something that would, you know, uh, allow his fans and the sports public to, to uh, you know, to to revisit him as we. That's the name of the book: Pete Sampras' greatness revisited. And I think it's the time is right.
0: Um, I, I go back to what you were saying about this this current era. I, I think it's an interesting point you raised that that. Pete Sampras 25 years ago had to adjust to you know more distinct surfaces, a greater diversity of opponents, different styles. How should we be factoring that in when when we play this inner era comparison game? I mean, what what does that mean to you?
1: Well, I think it raises his stock. I think that people I think it has to be taken you have to do some interpreting and 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 again, that's why I included the chapter about him playing against that trio because a lot of a lot of these former players believe he would have done quite well in his k- kinds of conditions on grass or indoors or you know at hard courts. But uh, no, it's an interesting point you're making, and I, I just think he uh, it's 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 hard to answer that, John. I think that, but I do think historians have to look at more than just Grand Slam titles, just total number of tournament titles, and again. He has the one record that stands out to me is the six years in a row at number one. Rafa, Novak, and Roger have all had five years total at number one. He did six years in a row. They'll never they'll never be able to match that. That So over a certain period of time, a very long period of time, he he stayed at the very top of the sport in, in a very uh, difficult era.
0: Right. Fin- finishing six different years that number one consecutive Right,
1: finishing the year, which, by the way, always, I think, meant more to him. He used to talk about that a lot, and we talked about it when I wrote the book, is that it's one thing to be number one on June the 3rd or September the 10th, but it's the the year end that really matters. And there were parts of those years when he wasn't number one, but the whole idea was end the year number one proves you were the best player for that year. And he did that six consecutive times.
0: Right. Um, You know, usually when you you ask people about the health of tennis, they talk about it. Ratings and participation numbers, and it suddenly becomes about business and marketing. I mean, as as somebody who focuses inside the lines, strictly as performance, where do you see the sport right now?
1: You know, and, and I'm not. You mean coming out of the pandemic, coming back to normal times? I mean, let's
0: yeah, you know, let's let's sort of suspend the pandemic. I mean, just sure. as as hitting balls over the you know as as a physical endeavor. So having nothing to do with the usual sort of gripes about television ratings and the lack of American stars and what's going to happen after Serena. Strictly as as X's and O's, what you see when play begins to when players shake hands at the net. What do you make of, of tennis as a, you know, as, as a performative, as, as a sport right now?
1: Well, I think, I, I think so much of it has depended on, on the trio. They, they've carried it. The fans expect them to win every major. I think they, they're such powerful personalities in their own right. And they're all, there is a, some diversity, obviously in the way they play with Rafa's unique left-handed spin and, Novak's astonishing defense and Rogers' just all-court brilliance, and so there is some diversity among the trio. And I I think they—what I worry about actually is not right now, John. It's it's around the corner. Uh, What happens when they leave? What happens when Federer retires in a year or two, which he might well do, or Federer and Nadal three, four years from now? You know who's going to step into their shoes? And I also hope that that we get a more diversified brand of players back again. I hope there's some Sampras-like player that emerges that can serve in volley. I don't believe that the, the homogenized surfaces or the, the slowing down of the surfaces should prevent somebody from being a great attacking player uh, in the Sampras mode. And I, I think it would do the game a lot of good because obviously in his era, there was a great contrast between Sampras and Agassiz, Sampras and Curry or Sampras and Chang. And then you have the other servant volleyers along with him. I think the game needs that again.
0: Is that equipment? Is that surfaces uh, becoming more homogenized? Or so, somebody made an interesting point to me saying it's just temperamental and about players' risk thresholds. And it's really not about fancy nylon strings. And it's not about – it's just – Players today really hate seeing the ball whiz by them when they come to the net, and it's demoralizing to get passed, and it's really all mental. What, what, do you, uh, what, what do you think of that?
1: I think there's a lot of validity to it. I don't know if I'd go quite that far to say that the surfaces and the balls and the, the general slowing down of the game has not been a factor, but I agree. I think th- there is that sense of, of low risk and not wanting to be embarrassed and, and just comfort. Comfort in knowing they can depend on their legs and their ball control and their speed and uh, to get them through these matches and consistency from the, from the baseline. So I, 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 I think that, again, if someone would come along and show them the way, they could influence an entire era and, and the sport might be transformed in some ways.
0: Can Pete Sampras exist in 2020?
1: Well, I think Pete Sampras, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think he would have changed that much. I think the difference would have been that maybe he would have served in volley a little less on his second serve. Uh, maybe instead of it being, a, you know, almost 100% of the time, he might have brought it down in the range of 60%, 70%. But I don't think he would have changed that much. And I think it, would, it still would have worked. There would have been minor adjustments, but I still think he would have been essentially the same attacking player he was.
0: And how do you think, Pete Sampras would handle some of the other obligations. I mean, we talked about social media, but that's obviously just a, a sliver of this. Um, you know, ro- Roger Federer makes, depending on who you believe, n- nine figures a year being Roger Federer. On the other hand, uh, it, it seems like it's increasingly difficult to do what Pete and, and to some extent Steffi did and just say, I'm, I'm hitting tennis balls, period, and I, I leave the other stuff to other players. How do you think he would handle what it means to be a professional athlete at the top of your sport in 2020.
1: Well, that would have been fascinating to see. I think, you know, he would have, he, as he acknowledged to me, he, he probably, he might have been open to some of the social media and maybe some of the other uh, things as well. It would it would have been more comfortable because he would have seen others who are doing it. On the other hand, I don't think he would have taken it to the degree that, uh, of comfort that you see, especially from Roger, but even Novak and Rafa as well. Because I still think, you know, he he, he he is who he is. And I think he would have stayed true to what he wanted to do. That's that's my guess. But it's really it really is fascinating.
0: What's your next book?
1: <laughs> you know, I, having just finished this one, I can't say. I mean, I hope, I hope there'll be another one a few years down the road. But I, I enjoyed this project immensely. And, and I certainly hope the, the public will as well.
0: We will uh, link... Amazon links on, on the show page and, and tell people how to get this. What um, y- you and I are talking on Monday. I feel like we need everything in COVID needs to be timestamped. Um, as, as we speak, the US Open still is on my calendar. Um, you, you have thoughts on whether, how and whether tennis ought to proceed uh, in, in the US and then internationally in, uh, in this strange period we're living through?
1: Well, I, thought, I think it has to be proceed, you say proceed, proceed with caution is the way I look at it. And I think the Open, In, in it, 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 I tip my hat to them in the sense that everything they've set up, all the precautions uh, in getting the players here as carefully as they can and testing them once they're here and not allowing fans on site, no media, all of the moves that they've made, I think are practical and smart. And now, uh, conversely, I don't think that's true of the French Open, but I think you want to stick with with America for now. And I, I, I think they're doing everything in their power to make this thing work. But the virus may not cooperate as we, I mean, I worry a lot about the, how the pandemic has exploded in other parts of the country, like Florida and Arizona and California and Texas. Right. And how do, you, how do you protect all these people coming in from different places? You know, Even some of the players might conceive we'd be coming in from Florida and might sure. test positive. It's a tricky proposition.
0: I mean, it it strikes me that um, ten- tennis's global nature is something you you and I probably love about this sport, but it's a lot more complicated. Uh, I mean, the, the, the travel alone makes things very, very complicated. Um, I, I think you're right, too, that in you and I are both in New York, and things seem to be, I, I won't say snapping back to normal, but the all the vectors are headed in the right direction. But, yeah, I mean, th- think about how many players are training in, in Florida and in Southern California right now. And you, you do uh, – I, I suspect that gives a lot of players cause for concern. Yeah,
1: and I, my w- other worry, John, would be, I, and I sure hope it doesn't happen, that they, they, they get started and they play the Cincinnati portion of the event and and then some players start getting sick and then it starts to mount. And then, and then what? At, at a certain point, do you shut it down or – you're having defaults left and right. I, I sure hope that doesn't happen. But in the back of my mind, I, I do worry about it.
0: So, so let me ask you this. As, as a tennis historian, um, I, I think, you know, it, it's who, who knows how this event is going to go as, as we speak. The, the MVP of World Team Tennis is a, a 37-year-old uh, Hall of Fame inductee with three kids who's, uh, I mean, I think the, these results could be all over the place. H- how do you suspect we are going to uh, sort of process the 2020 u.s open champion provided there is one i mean is this is this somebody who's distinguished themselves even more given the challenges or is this going to be people obviously reference Nikki Pillich, uh the the wimbledon title i mean how, how does history how, how is history going to interpret this u.s open champion
1: well to get back to that wimbledon title, I was fortunate because Jan kodesh won the title now he he had won a couple of friends and he went on to so people thought it was devalued but then he went on and and he was in two U.S. Open finals, and, and he, he, I thought he validated in a way. But right now, I think it would depend partially on the entry. He had 13 of the top 16 original seeds that here at Wimbledon didn't play because of the boycott. So now, what happens if this Open, we were missing seven of the top 10, and uh, David Goffin wins the tournament? I mean, we can't take it away from David Goffin if he wins the tournament, and and good for him, and he'll have earned it. He'll win seven matches to to get there. But... Will we look at it the same way that we do a typical U.S. Open it gets back to interpreting again? I suspect not.
0: This will be very happy news to uh, David Goffat that he is your twenty twenty <laughs> U.S. Open champion. No, but I, th- I think you're right. I think, I, think, um, I think seven out of the top ten seeds missing, that is not dissimilar to what, uh, to what I've been hearing. Do you, do you think they should play best of five?
1: well I, I i I don't I think the players that's a very good question a lot of the players may not be in in the best physical shape to do it although i I think if they're going to make a move to best of three they should let that be known very quickly and players should should be aware of it well in advance. A case could be made that this year given the circumstances pretty much six months of players being away from the game from official tournaments for about six months that that you, you could do best of three all the way through to protect them because they're potentially they're going to be a lot of injuries as well.
0: I had um, – I mean, I, I had a player text me who's playing World Team Tennis who basically said the same thing, that uh, everybody's happy to be here and playing, but there's a big difference between working out in your basement or hitting balls on a public court with your coach and then match play and that they're thinking the the, the trainers at the U.S. Open are going to get a workout because – Going going back on court and playing in match conditions and heat with the stress hormones that come from competition, that's that's a big difference than hitting balls in Florida with with your coach for 90 minutes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The heat and then the hard courts combined, that can be a deadly combination. And normally the players have had that entire summer. They've played a couple of, you know, they played Canada and Cincinnati. They're ready for it. They played the whole year. This time, they're, they're jumping into pretty deep water, and, and it could be dangerous.
0: Let me ask you one more question. How, how do you think tennis has acquitted itself this last six months? I mean, wh- what have you learned about the sport, and how, how would you grade the job tennis has done dealing with, uh, you know, we, we, we have this, like, it's like word salad, this challenging slash unprecedented slash unsettling, whatever your adjective is. How's tennis done dealing with this, uh, this nuts period we've all been living through? Well,
1: overall, quite well. I mean, from the administrative side, for Wimbledon to give out the prize money, I think, is a, is a great thing. They could have been a little greedier about it. Granted, they had their insurance, but it's the right thing to do. And the ATP and WTA, they, they've been very supportive of the players. The players themselves have tried hard. I thought that Djokovic caught more flack than he should have for what happened in Serbia, only because the other players are grown-ups, too. And what about Zarev? What about team what about all the rest they they knew exactly what they were doing that was a mistake but i think their heart was in the right place overall i think the game is coming out of this quite well and maybe they'll maybe it'll change a lot of outlooks among the players that they there'll be a a level of appreciation for for what they're doing that they uh, that they never really quite had before
0: well put um congrats again on the book it's lovely to uh speak albeit by zoom maybe we'll uh Maybe sooner rather than later, it will be in person. But uh, congrats again. It's, uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think this new, fresh approach to uh, appreciating Pete Sampras is, is well-deserved. And uh, I think a lot of people will n- not only enjoy this book, but enjoy sort of what it represents, which is uh, let, let's not get so caught up in the moment and the recency, and, and let's give these guys their due from the previous era. So uh, well done. I'm thinking uh, R- Roger Maris is next.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't mind that. I just listened to Phil Rizzuto's call of his 61st home run in 1961 on the radio call. It was brought back great memories.
0: He beat P- Pete Sampras in, I mean, he beat Pat Rafter in Twilight. Um, this, was, uh, this was great. I appreciate it. And uh, congrats. This is great. And I will, uh, I will happily and heartily uh, plug your book.
1: Thanks, John. And thanks a lot for having me on. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Steve. That was great. Take care.
0: Okay, great. Enjoyed that conversation. Hope you did as well. Thanks, as always, to Steve. Always a pleasure uh, talking shop with him. Thanks to Jamie for all of her expertise. She uh, is, is missed, and we will have uh, some conversations resuming next week, I hope. Uh, programming note, I think I promised that Richard Gasquet would be our guest. Uh, for the record, I dropped the ball on that one, or more accurately, the shaky Wi-Fi uh, in my neck of the woods dropped the ball. So, uh, Richard Thanks for the effort. We will uh, do it again some other time, but that was my fault. Keep the guest suggestions coming. They have been tremendous. Uh, Your mailbag questions have been a reliable source of entertainment. Uh, Leave a review. Subscribe. Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Um, Hope everyone uh, truly is hanging in there. And with any luck, we will uh, get on to uh, to brighter things and some real tennis here pretty soon. Um, Okay, have a good week, everyone. We will do it again next week.